Thanks for joining us for this short, special edition of the Contrast Theory Podcast. While the full-length episodes will come back soon, here are some short book overviews to tide you over until then. Today, we're going to be focusing on book called Philemon. Now, a lot of people kind of miss out on this book. If I was to survey, I think, a thousand different Christians about what books are in the New Testament, this one would not come up. <laughs> Probably not. Most people forget it's even there, to be honest. Mm. So why is this letter in the New Testament? No, that's a good question. Um, because when you first read it, 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 it seems like Paul is basically saying, hey, um, you know, you've, you had a slave and now you should take him back. Um, so, you know, this is a very, it can be a controversial letter because its contents can and have been used to justify slave owning as well in the past. However, the interesting thing about this letter is that when you look through it and you read it carefully in context, understanding that, you know, Paul isn't just writing in this sort of flat monotone and you understand a little bit of the the context and the dynamics of um how relationships work in the first century, um, you know, the issues of patronage and, and how people are supposed to act with honor and shame. Then this letter becomes actually quite a, a subtle letter about Paul arguing that slavery in this case, um, for the case of Onesimus, should be abolished and um, that Christians should instead treat their slaves as though they were free or, you know, in fact, free them in general. So it doesn't have explicit Christian content in the way that many of other Paul's letters normally would do. Um, but there are very strong uh, Christian principles running all the way throughout this letter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where is Paul as he's writing this? Um, good question. It's, it's, not a, it's not hugely clear. Um, all that Paul says is that he's a prisoner uh, at this point, which, I mean, with Paul, that could mean anything. <laughs> You know, he's been in prison multiple times. Um, it feels, you know, it he feels like he's in prison so. half of his life. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, so, so we don't fully know. What we do know is that this is a, a letter from Paul, and it says, and from our brother Timothy. So we don't really know if Timothy is carrying the letter for him and reading it out, or if Timothy is also in prison with him. Uh, it's not 100% clear. Uh, we know that he's in prison with Epaphras because he says so at the end. Um, but... Yeah, it's really hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do you think this letter has uh, in terms of implications uh, to Paul's other letters? Does it have a lot of uh, kind of cross-referencing? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't think it really does. It, it, this is a very weird letter, as we've, we've kind of mentioned already. And, you know, sometimes when we have weird letters like this, the question that we need to ask is, like you asked, why is this here? Um you know, the when we talk about the biblical canon, which we've talked about before on, uh, see our full episode for for more details on con- contrast theory. Um, but you know, with the canon, it doesn't sort of get thrown together. It takes hundreds of years, and people put together. You know, the the, the early church um, slowly assembles these letters that they think are relevant and important to them. So obviously, they thought that this letter was important and it, and, and you know a, a very relevant one. And, and at this time, many people have slaves. Um, Paul talks about slavery elsewhere by saying that we need to be like slaves for Christ, um, for Jesus. But really, this just sort of stands alone. We see links to people like Timothy, uh, to Aphia, you know, um, to Epaphras and, and Aristarchus, Mark, uh, Demas, and a few other people. 
uh, and Luke as well. Um, but that's about it. You know, it, it is a standalone, unique, weird little thing. But obviously its message is important. So what's important then is what does it say? So how would we read it? No, um, one, of the th- one of the problems that we've had in the last few years, um, well, when I say last few years, I mean sort of post, um, post-Reformation era, mm-hmm. really, is that we read in a very static way. You know, we, we, we have the privilege of having text on paper in front of us now, and we're used to reading individually uh, in, in our own kind of settings. But what that means is that we tend to just kind of sit there and, well, let the words jump off the page at us. Now, that's a helpful start, indeed, but it's not really the way that the ancient world would have done it. Um, because, you know, back in those days, most people probably couldn't read or write. Uh, you know, the figures are quite debated quite strongly, actually, about the level of literacy in the ancient world. But what we know is often, if you couldn't read or write, and we suspect that many of the early Christians couldn't, what actually happened was someone would actually come up and read it for you. You'd have to pay someone uh, or you'd employ someone um, who was educated enough to, to read for you, possibly a slave themselves. So when you read then, one of the things that you have to do is try and place yourself in the position of the person who is writing the letter, uh, which is why I, earlier I mentioned that you know Timothy could be the one delivering the letter because what that means is he's he's acting as Paul in that sense when he reads it to them. He, he he's a stand-in for them, and and so um, whenever there's a letter like this in the New Testament, whoever's reading it actually has a very heavy responsibility because they have to get into the minds and into the hearts of the person who wrote it and try and figure out, you know, at what point do we include these particular different types of emotions? Because, you know, when you write a letter, it's not all flat, right? You know, sometimes you're angry, sometimes you're happy. You know, Paul says things like, uh, you know, you foolish Galatians, you know, we don't just read that and kind of go, oh, you foolish Galatians. That's, that's got real anger in it. That's got some emotion. And things like sarcasm, which, you know, we don't often see um, talked about in, in the church today. Um, but, you know, rhetorical techniques like this, like um, uh, uh, using your, I guess, your relational chips, if you like, um, in the relationship that you have, where Paul is the, uh, the patron, if you like. Um, you know, all of these little subtle little things often kind of go straight over our heads because we don't live in that context anymore. So when we read it, uh, it's important to actually just pause and, and ask ourselves, what kind of emotion do we hear? Or could there be behind these statements? Because that really changes the way that we understand the text. So Timothy was a very good choice for Paul, because obviously mm. Timothy knew Paul very well uh, mm. for years and years. So he would have been a very good person to be able to portray Paul's emotions and exactly yes. what he would have been feeling. Uh, do you think that he was probably there when he wrote it? Or was, was a lot of it kind of... Uh, them just doing interpretation as they thought fit? Um, It's impossible to say, unfortunately, with with questions like that. I think, you know, if Paul's in prison, how likely is it that he's got access to to paper, to parchment, rather, or or papyrus, you know, to someone who can write for him? We don't really know if Paul can write or not. Uh, We suspect he probably can to some degree, but it's unlikely that he would have himself. Um, So it's possible that Timothy was his scribe, or if not his scribe, actually brought a scribe along with him uh, to visit Paul in prison. And by, by doing so, you know, it's kind of a visit to Paul. And then so he, he's there as the letter is recorded. And then Paul might say, hey, look, you know, bring this over and, and read this out loud to this congregation. Do, do we believe that this is the same Timothy from the book of Timothy? I, I don't think we have any real reason to doubt that at this point. 
Um, yeah, um, th that's probably about as far as I'll speculate, I think, with this. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, we can see when, when we read it, and we will read it in just a second, but mm -hmm. this is Paul's only letter where he doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death and resurrection. Mm. Why do you mm -hmm. think that is? Um, there's a number of possible reasons. Number one is um, it's the type of letter. So this is not one of those letters that he's writing to the church, right? This is very clearly to an individual. Although, as we'll see in a second, Paul kind of plays with that a little bit because it's to an in individual, but it's not. Mm. Um, so in doing that, you, you, you know, it's a bit more like the letter to Timothy where you don't need to go through a theological treatise in the same way because that's not the point of the letter. You know, um, these letters, as, as we can see, these letters are short. Uh, they, they, they have a very specific purpose. Uh, it's a bit more like an email. Right, or a memo, you know, for, for some of the people who live through memos. Um, you know, you, you don't want to write a whole essay in it. You're just saying, hey, look, you need to know this right now. Here you go. Whereas if, if you needed a more long-form communication, then that's the place to do, uh, then you write a longer letter, and that's the place to do more theology, if you like. Uh, another reason is that, um, you know, he's writing to a person embedded within a congregation that has already received his letters, um, very likely, and has had, obviously, a relationship with Paul himself. So, in some senses, um, I guess Paul doesn't need to do that because, very likely, they already know what his theology is. They already um, are familiar with him and the way he thinks. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's not a problem at this very instant. What is interesting is asking the question, why doesn't Paul um, leverage, I guess, Christian theology more in, in trying to convince um, Philemon to take Onesimus back, as we'll see. And, and, you know, it is a bit of a, a weird one. But what I love about it is that Paul uses cultural cues, right, and cultural norms to, to, to make this um, case for, for um, Onesimus. And what that tells me is that Paul continues to work contextually. You know, he, he never uses Christianese uh, when he can use other techniques, you know, sometimes it's just not appropriate. And I think that has a lot of lessons for us in our own lives today, where, you know, when we encounter people, when we talk to them, um, appropriately distance, of course, <laughs> um, at the moment, but, you know, when, when we're interacting with people, it's often not very helpful to use Christianese to, to try and get a point across or, or to convince them of something or whatever. Instead, we need to do what Paul does and contextualize our language, contextualize the way we talk, contextualize our arguments uh, in a way that appeals best to them. Uh, it's a very helpful kind of missional statement in that sense where we, we, we say, look, don't just throw slogans at someone. Meet them where they are, think through what they have to say, and you know, kind of address that rather than going, oh, let me tell you about Christian theology. So I think all of that, you know, they're not perhaps the best perfect reasons to that explain it, but I think these are as good reasons as we have. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's sure. read the book. So what I might do is I'll read it, and as I'm reading it, I will pause and kind of do little comments and annotations to under help us understand what's going on. Yeah, great. So I'm in the New Living Translation, going through Philemon. It's almost as if you're a uh, Bible, Bible teacher. <laughs> I know. Uh, don't quit your day job, right? <laughs> oh, dear. All right, let, let me begin. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. 
Now let me pause there. This is very interesting because this starts off like a personal letter, a one-to-one letter where Paul, the only person, is writing to Philemon, the only recipient. However, Paul very quickly expands this and says, no, I want Aphia to hear this and Archippus and the church that meets in your house to hear this letter as well. Which is an interesting point because all of a sudden this is a private letter that's being read out in public. So Paul is using, I guess, social dynamics here to try and um, make whatever personal thing he has to say become a public thing and in doing so probably coerce Philemon to do the right thing. Let me continue in verse 4. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. So Paul doing a fairly standard thing here, which is, you know, kind of saying some nice things about the recipient of the letter. But Paul here is already beginning to to make his case. What he's saying to Philemon is, hey, Philemon, you're a great bloke. Now you have an obligation, really, don't you? Because you're a great bloke to do what I'm asking you. So, So there's a little bit of, I mean, manipulation is probably a strong word here, but it does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? There's a bit of social pressure, if you like, uh, that Paul is using. So let me come on down to verse 8. That is why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. So Paul is pulling out all his all his chips, I guess, uh, his, uh, and saying... I'm all in. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm asking you for a favor. I could demand it because I have the right to, and also because it's the right thing to do. So, so what Paul is saying here is, you need to do the right thing. Um, but then Paul says, I'm an old man. So, you know, respect for the elderly is a very important um, part of that society, of course. Uh, and of course, as a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, I, I'm a prisoner, you know. Help me out with this one little thing, my friend, is what he's saying. So let me continue from verse 10. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. So Paul really laying it on here. He's saying, you know, this guy Onesimus, he's like, a, he's like my child now. You know, he is so useful. He is so important to all of us. I'm sending him back to you and with him my own heart. And in other translations, it says says something like, he has become my heart. So Paul here, sorry, is making it clear to Philemon that Onesimus now is more than just a slave. Onesimus is now a full-fledged Christian brother, at least in Paul's eyes. And because Paul is someone important to Philemon, therefore Onesimus should also be important. Let me continue on verse 13. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while, 
so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So Paul here twists the knife a little bit. He says, look, Philemon, I, I want you to do the right thing. So he, what he's done here is he's essentially painted Philemon into a corner. Remembering that this isn't just Philemon listening to this message, it's the whole church. Um, Paul says, I want you to take um, Onesimus back. You know, and, and it seems like Onesimus, um, from what we've picked up so far, used to be a slave of Philemon's. And now, you know, and, and for whatever reason, obviously ran away and, and fled to Paul, perhaps for sanctuary. And Paul is sending him back saying, he is no longer like a slave. In fact, you should treat him like a brother as well. So Paul is saying, without actually saying it, you need to set Onesimus free. No longer let him be a slave. And now my favorite part of the letter. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he, he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. So Paul here, very clear. This is something that I'm asking you to do or really demanding of you. Now, Paul obviously is in a position of power over uh, Philemon. He's like his patron. He's the one who led him to faith. He is the one who was, I guess, a, um, a mentor to him. And now he's saying, well, you owe me. <laughs> you owe me even your own soul. So what I'm asking in context is really not that much. And then this is where one of those little hints, right, as to the question of as to whether Paul can write or not. Paul says, I'm writing this with my own hand. And, and, and what we think at the moment is that this is probably like a, I sign this myself, you know. At the bottom of letters nowadays, we have a signature and then your name. So Paul is, if in effect, adding on his signature to make it really, really clear just how important this is to him, that he has taken the pen himself and gone, I'm writing this. Let's come to a close in verse 21. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demis, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul here essentially says to Philemon, I've asked you to do all this. I'm asking you to go above and beyond what I've asked you. And guess what? I'm going to come check up on you. <laughs> Prepare a room for me. I will come and visit you soon. And Onesimus better be free. And he says, oh, by the way, all these other people, Demis, Mark, Aristarchus, they all know about this too. So we've got a cloud of witnesses in, to use um, <laughs> a Pauline phrase, I guess, or a, a, a New Testament phrase. There's a cloud of witnesses who've seen what's happened here, and we all know about this. So you better behave, my friend, or we're all going to come in and hold you to account. So, so that's kind of what Philemon is about. It's about Paul using the tools at his disposal within the culture of his time to ask for social justice, essentially. He's saying, don't let this man be a slave. He, he's saying to Philemon, yes, I understand that Onesimus did the wrong thing in running away from you. He may have done other things, we don't know. 
Paul is saying, let it go. You know, he has now become like a brother to me, my own child. He's a Christian now. I'm not sure if he was before, but he definitely is now. And so as a fellow Christian, you have an obligation to him. Just because you, Philemon, are in power over Onesimus, well, doesn't mean that you get to do what you want to him. In fact, Paul is saying, I want you to willingly get rid of this power, to give it up in a way, in a, a very Jesus-like way, because, um, yeah, you know, people shouldn't be slaves, essentially. <laughs> so at, at, at the end, there is, is Paul basically twisting the arm of Philemon saying, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't know Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have been saved. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's one of those things where we kind of go, ooh, is this manipulation? What's Paul doing here? But consider the fact that, you know, in, in the ancient world, slavery is so prevalent and so normal, right? Everyone owns slaves in this time. And so what Paul is asking is actually something very unusual. Yes, slaves could be freed, and yes, slaves could work for their freedom, and depending on the master, they could be given grace. But it seems like in this situation, Philemon's actually, uh, sorry, Onesimus is actually due for punishment, right? And, and in the culture of the day, that's perfectly normal, right? Slaves run away, well, you do what you want to them. Whip them, you know, kill them, whatever. Cut their hand off, cut their arm off. Um, but Paul is actually going, using all the tools at his disposal to say, no, this is not right. We should be better than this, essentially. You should be better than this, Philemon. And so, you know, by, by writing this one letter and trying to, to save this one slave, Paul is setting an example, really, for the rest of all Christians everywhere as to how they should treat the question of slavery. And, and so I think that's why this letter survives till today. You know, that's why it's part of the canon. That's why it's so important, because, you know, it, it shows us Christians how we should treat other people when we have power over them. And the lengths to which Paul certainly is willing to go in order to do what's right for other people. The, the real question that we have, I think, is how many letters like this did Paul write that we don't know about? Mm. You know, we've got mm -hmm. Philemon in, in the New Testament, obviously, um, possibly because it was, you know, read to a bunch of people as well. But... You know, we don't know. Paul might have written hundreds, dozens of other letters like this, asking for slave slaves to be set free and, you know, for, for women's rights, for all kinds of different things. We just don't know what could have happened. Mm. But what we do have gives us a really good clue as to what Paul thought about slavery at this time and how he felt. So really, really interesting letter, a really helpful one. Um, it's not one that you'll do heaps of Bible study on, I don't think. Um, but, you know, it's really comforting to know that it's there in the New Testament. Mm. Well, I would encourage everyone, take the time, take five minutes, read this book. You know, if, if that's all you do, you know, if that's all the Bible study you do for today, that's fine. You know what? This, yeah, it right. doesn't take very long. So, uh, you know, I, once again, if you want longer forms of this sort of content, join us at Contrast Theory. Um, but thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you soon. And we'll be covering more books of the Bible. <laughs>